just while Wendy's getting ready, um, Wendy's our final speaker. Uh, she's a professor of clinical ethics at the Macquarie University. Uh, she's jointly appointed between the departments of philosophy and clinical medicine. And Professor Rogers is currently the chair of the New South Wales Ministry of Health and Clinical Ethics Advisory Panel. So today, Professor Rogers will discuss the ideal framework and what steps may be necessary for such frameworks to become relevant professional standards for introducing innovations. Thanks, Lisa, um, and thank you all, and thank you for inviting me, Tina. Um, so what I'm, I'm talking about innovative surgery, of course, um, and what I'm talking about now is how the work that um, I've been able to present at this group over the last couple of years is actually now progressing from a sort of an ARC um, funded uh, linkage project in Australia where we were trying to develop a definition of innovation through to getting a checklist which is now going entering into a trial phase and now I'm linking with the international group um, that originally based at Oxford who have promulgated this thing called the ideal framework which they started their work in 2009 and this is a framework for evaluating surgical innovations and so now um, my work sort of converging with their work and we're, we're now um, working together on the latest iteration of the ideal framework in an attempt to build in <coughs> ethics to that so that's what I'm going to talk about but first of all I'm going to introduce you to Paolo Macchiarini He's, he's like a superstar surgeon. Um, he invented the first synthetic trachea, which was implanted in 2009 in Sweden, and it was made of this thing called a bioartificial nanocomposite. I hope you're impressed. I was. Seeded with autologous bone marrow cells, stem cells, and then matured for 36 hours in a bioreactor. And this was like a box with a green light, and it rotated, kind of like a chicken on a spit for 36 hours. Then he put it into the patients. Well, he was wooed from Italy to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which, you know, is involved in handing out Nobel Prizes, so it's like, it's not a third-rate institute. And there he proceeded to do his surgery to um, enormous international acclaim. We'll get back to him. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about are the, some of the gaps in evaluating surgical innovation and how the ideal framework um, attempts to fill those gaps. Bringing, and then um, the work we're just doing at the moment, um, papers just about ready to submit in sort of building up the discussion of the ethical issues that arise in each of the stages of um, uh, innovation that the ideal framework describes. And then I just leave the question open as to whether um, people think this kind of amounts to de facto regulation, given that there isn't much other regulation of surgical innovations. So the ideal framework, um, well, they had the same motivation as my group really, they published their first set of papers in 2009 and they claimed quite correctly I think that evaluating um, a therapeutic procedure based intervention presents several methodological and practical challenges for the surgical research community. So surgery was stinging, there had been a, a, you know, a, a very sort of vitriolic um, editorial in the Lancet which kind of described surgery as you know totally non-evidence based and just you know not much better than witchcraft and they never did any research and you know so the surgeons were smarting a bit and wanting to really get their act into gear but there are challenges it's um it's hard to do a randomized controlled trial in surgery compared to um, using a, an intervention like a tablet because of uh, standardizing the procedure um, blinding patients and so forth surgical interventions are complex you've got all the factors related to the surgeon but then you've also got um, what's going on in theatre, post-operative care and so on that can affect the outcomes. Um, you've got the sort of master-apprentice model in surgery, so uh, um, there's a sort of a tendency for practice just to perpetuate and if you want to do a trial and try something new, you might be seen as a bit uppity or you know, not, not, not knowing your place. 
Um, surgical careers have got a very strong focus on practical skills. They, you know, it, it, they've got to really do a lot of hours in theatre to, to develop and maintain their skills. And doing um, a long-term clinical trial doesn't always fit very easily with that when they're trying to move around and get exposure to other um, mentors and clinicians to work with. Um, surgical research is underfunded compared to medical research. And there's this lack of regulation of surgical techniques and instruments. So new devices have to go through the Therapeutic Goods Administration. But when you use an instrument, like when you use the laparoscope in a different part of the body, um, you don't need any regulatory approval because the laparoscope's already approved. Uh, and if you use a new technique, um, then you don't have to tell anybody. And that, this was hit the front pages of the um, Sydney papers a couple of years ago now, it was a, a brilliant, it was, I thought it was an absolutely brilliant um, new technique to fix a, um, a problem in neonates called um, esophageal atresia where the esophagus hasn't grown properly and they fixed it in this really novel great way and it was on the front page of the paper and the, did, this baby did really well and then when you read it the parents were very glad they hadn't been told it had only ever been done once before. <laughs> and, and I presented this at one of our research groups and the hospital um, medical director in the group kind of went pale until it turned out it was at St Elsewhere's, not at her hospital, because she felt she wouldn't have known if it had been at her hospital. So that's the level, the way innovation in techniques can just go completely under the radar. Okay, so is, is surgical innovation research in Australia, the current um, National Statement on Ethical Conduct in Human Research, leaves it up to the responsible clinician's judgment to say whether something's an innovation or um, research. If it's research, then it has to go to a Human Research Ethics Committee. If it's innovation, it doesn't. So there's a lot of leeway in the current statement. That's under review at the moment, um, and the current se section three, which has just been out of public review, has got a glossary entry on innovation. This does introduce some of the elements that, um, in my definition, not surprising because I'm chairing the whole process, um, but it's not, it's still, I don't think it's tight enough and I'm, we've got the f public feedback coming in, so we'll see what happens. So we're trying to, to really hone the definition of innovation here so that then a, an ethics committee can say this is research, not innovation. But it's got to get to the ethics committee for them to make that determination. If it's flying under the radar, then it's never even going to reach the regulatory space. Okay, so that's some background. So the ideal framework um, was set up by this group at Oxford, and ideal stands for the five stages that they've identified, innovation, development, exploration, assessment, and long-term. This is the first iteration of the framework, and we're now working on the third one. So this was published in 2009. So what they call stage one innovation, uh, you've just got one or two patients, um, one or two surgeons, let's say ethics sometimes. This is this is from the from the Lancet, so this is, I haven't doc doctored this, and there isn't a learning curve because there's just one surgeon doing it, and oh, I don't know why there's not a learning curve because she's learning how to do it properly anyway. So then you have that that sort of set that piece of research or piece of innovation, and then it gets developed a little bit. And actually, um, the first presentation, Ian Richardson described that how he would do something, and then if it worked, he'd do it in a few more patients and so forth. So stage two A is development, where you've still only got a very few highly selected patients. It's re it's offered as part of clinical care usually. Still got a very few number of surgeons, maybe just two or three surgeons in one unit. They've put ethics yes, although that's not happening, um, that this work is generally not classified as research at the moment. And you've got the learning curve, which um, is where the surgeons are learning the procedure, and there's a lot of dangers for patients in that section. Stage 2B, the innovation settling down, it's becoming more standardised, so you can teach it to more people and it's starting spreading out. And then by the time you get to stage 3, that's normally the randomised control trial stage. 
Um, and stage four is the long-term follow-up registries which picked up the knees, the, the metal on metal knees which someone's already mentioned. Um, so that's the, that, those are the stages of surgical innovation according to um, the ideal people when they, when they defined this in 2009. Um, and that has had some, some uptake which I'll talk about. And, but back to Paolo, things didn't go so well for his patients. Seven out of the nine died and the other two had their artificial tracheas removed, replaced with cadaveric implants. There have been two investigations and a documentary and it's a typical kind of whistleblower against a superstar. Um, his first, the first one was from in-house uh, whistleblowers. Um, they were completely squashed by the institution. And then they got an external institution to review it. And again, the heads of the Karolinska didn't like it. And then a reporter, an investigative reporter, was doing a you know, documentary on him because he was so great and was looking at all his stuff and saying, well, hang on, this trick here is full of holes. You know, he was looking at his actual research. Anyway, the, once the documentary aired, it all kind of, you know, fell to bits as it were. And he, you know, he'd failed to obtain ethics approval, he'd failed to obtain consent, he'd falsified his published data, he was very much disgraced as was much of the senior staff of the Karolinska Institute and the Ethics Committee. So that's quite interesting about sort of the innovators and the bad apples because I mean he just did so many things that were wrong, it's just that not that he did his innovation and didn't tell anyone, but he was falsifying data. Um, yeah, I mean, he sort of, you know, he didn't just kind of dip his toe in, in, the, in the area of, um, uh, you know, practice that we might want to sanction. So that was, that didn't end well for him. Okay, so, um, so that, this, that was just an example, because we, do, we don't get that many examples where innovation goes horribly wrong. And, and the ones we do get are because of, they come to public attention in various ways. So I'm sort of, I collect them when I, when I see them, so we've got, got some to, to talk about. Um, so as I say, now we're doing the third iteration of the ideal framework. Um, they're introducing a stage zero because I think there's some issues to do with what kind of work comes before um, uh, an intervention actually goes into the first in human trial. And the ethical issues there is really the sort of the standard ethical issues that ex you'd expect in, um, for research integrity as well as animal welfare issues and validity of research if you're doing animal studies. I think stage one is the ethically the most interesting because this is where you're doing it for the first time in a human, usually in the context of um, a high level of clinical need and often a sort of a last option. If there, was, if there was a good treatment that already worked, you wouldn't be necessarily trying an innovation in the patient. Um, so they're described in the ideal framework as first in human studies with an unstable and evolving intervention. And th th this is where I think there's a, a lot of ethical issues come up. These won't usually be going to an ethics committee. We think they should definitely be going to some kind of review process, not necessarily a formal human research ethics committee, but some kind of overview. And the issues include failure to identify innovation, so then no supports are put in place. Um, failure to minimise harm, so, so we're thinking an oversight committee to review. Someone who's not, not involved, because the innovators are you know, very excited, they're doing something new, they think it's going to work, so having some external oversight. Um, Innovation-specific consent, which Ian mentioned in his um, presentation. Team communication, so that everyone knows you're doing an innovation, so again, it's like you're not just kind of pulling the kit out of your bag in theatre and saying, hey everyone, we're using this today. Um, conflicts of interest, I think external review or oversight will help with that. Um, and, and issues, again, which come up in um, Ian's presentation of not being able to publish like a single thing. Uh, Ideal is recommending that you have registers from the very first in human trials so that data is collected. And that's not only to start collecting safety and efficacy data for things that works, but it's also to have a repository of things that don't work so people know not to do, thing, not to do that again. 
Stage 2A, you're doing a prospective studies, um, usually in a single centre. You should be seeking human research ethics approval at this stage, the surgeon should be, but often if they describe it as audit or as a series, as case series, and I think that was the words that Ian used as well, it doesn't go anywhere near ethics review. So again, what I'm trying to argue is that you should be having an oversight committee of some sort, and if it is actually research, it should be going to the human research ethics committee, and they might need a surgical innovation subcommittee. Um, and you've got issues to do with surgical skills training and patient consent because you haven't got enough patients to have kind of mapped out the terrain for, for harms and so forth. Um, publishing outcomes can be tricky because people are wanting to guard their intellectual property at this stage, um, but they're, they're sort of trying to work with lawyers to, to find a way of sorting that out. Stage two, you'd, B, you're doing exploratory randomised control trials. You're really getting into firmly into human research ethics territory, so there shouldn't be any question that this is going to a research ethics committee and um, the surgical specific issues are um, minimising harm, sorting out the learning curve as more people take on the, the new issue um, and making sure you've got all you know, justice and equity in your process of research. Stage three is the randomised control trials. Uh, and you've just got the usual research ethics issues that are coming up with randomised control trials. There is more of a push in surgery now for RCTs. I think people are thinking they are feasible. It is possible to, to recruit people. It, it is possible. To, but they are hugely cumbersome and expensive, and so there's you know, people are looking at different ways to try and run them in a slightly less expensive and cumbersome way. The stage four is when the innovation's been accepted, been through the RCT, got all the approvals it needs, and it's rolled out. And this is where you really need the long-term registers. There's no sort of uh, research ethics framework in operation here because the innovation's offered as part of normal clinical care. Um, but if you don't have linked data, registries, and so forth, you miss things like the complications from the hip, um, which were picked up in, uh, in Australia first because we have a very good um, joint register. Um, and there's various ethical issues in terms of e equity and access and uptake and, and, and collecting data, who's going to pay for that collection, who's going to monitor it and so forth. And all through those there's conflicts of interest. So I think where, where I've got to with this is thinking, well, what's the status of this? So ideal have proclaimed themselves, you know, the international leaders in evaluating surgical innovations, you know, they're, they're publishing the papers and so forth. There's been a lot of citations of their work. There's been a couple of places, Bristol in particular has embraced it warmly and they've published a paper of how they tried to follow IDEAL when they implemented um, a procedure um, minimally invasive esophagectomy. And that's a very nice paper showing how, how IDEAL could kind of work in that situation. Um, so I guess I'm interested in, in, in the views here as to whether that can have a potential regulatory role and how that fits in with things like um, professional duty to register research, because the people that don't register as research I think are breaching their professional duties, um, pressures from the journals to have to require registration, um, and how the regulatory bodies, bodies view innovation. And uh, that's it. And I'd like to thank um, particularly Katrina Hutchison, who's been my co-author on this work, um, and the linkage team and the ideal people. Thanks. <laughs>